you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, I want to add my welcome to those that you've already received from Peter, uh, and a warm welcome to those uh, of you who are joining us online. Uh, my name's Stephen, and I'm excited to be able to spend this time with you diving into Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, if you uh, have your Bible, uh, I would love for you to open it up to Nehemiah 4. Uh, and if you don't have a physical Bible, uh, we have some out at our info desk in the foyer, uh, feel free to grab one from our welcome team on your way out. Uh, but before we continue in God's Word, let's come before Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You speak to us through Your Word. 
Would you help me to clearly uh, explain and proclaim your good news through this passage? And would you continue to shape and to transform each one of us by your Holy Spirit into the likeness of Jesus? We pray these things in his name. Amen. This morning's sermon is part two, basically, of the sermon that I got to preach last month in Ezra chapter four. Uh, God's people continue to face opposition as they seek to rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem. In today's passage, we will see three responses that Nehemiah calls God's people to have. But before we consider these things, in case it hasn't been made clear yet, we need to understand that opposition is normal. It's part and parcel of what it means to be God's people. Sure, there might be lulls in between periods of opposition, but the reality is God's people will face opposition again and again and again. Opposition for a Christian is like a bad smell. You know what they say about a bad smell, right? It never goes away. You might be able to reposition yourself temporarily downwind for a period of time, but when the wind changes direction, you'll find that that smell is still there. There's no escaping a bad smell. Likewise, there's no escaping opposition if you're a follower of Jesus. Now, this shouldn't come as a surprise. Uh, it was only a couple of months ago that we were in the book of 1 Peter, and we were being reminded that we are sojourners and exiles living in a land that is not our home. And 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 reminds us that not to be surprised when we face fiery trials. Now, there might be a number of reasons for why we face opposition as God's people. Some of those reasons include maybe God is seeking to refine us as his people. Maybe God is seeking to strengthen our faith in him. We are called in the Bible to identify with Christ in his suffering. Uh, maybe it's even disciplinary at times. Or maybe God is using the opposition to make his name known in ways and to people who would otherwise continue to live in ignorance of who he is. Yeah, it sucks at times that this is the way that God chooses to work. But if he, can t work, if he can be at work turning one man's death on a cross into the ultimate sacrifice for salvation for any who trust in this man, Jesus, he can certainly use whatever you and I face today for his glory. And this is not to belittle any opposition you might face. That's real. The pain and the frustrations of persevering in the face of opposition is real. However, God is still God and he continues to work in the midst of that opposition. So how then ought we to respond? As I said earlier, Nehemiah chapter 4, specifically verse 14 lists three responses that Nehemiah calls God's people to have. Uh, the first response is, do not be afraid. Uh, 
in verse 14, having gathered the Jews and their leaders together, the first thing Nehemiah says to them is, do not be afraid of them. Now, when someone says, do not be afraid, that generally means there's something to be afraid of. So what is it that Nehemiah is telling God's people not to be afraid of? The first part of Nehemiah 4 gives us some insight into this. In verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 4, it says, Now when Sanballat heard that, that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. If you're new to joining us here, or maybe you missed last week, you might be wondering, who is this Sanballat guy? Well, he's one of the leaders of the people living in the area around Jerusalem. And he's pretty angry that Nehemiah has come to help the Jews rebuild this wall around their city. And it seems that he's well-trained in the art of jeering. Uh, it's the same term that we see used back in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. If you don't know what it is, or what it means to jeer at something or someone, it means that you loudly make rude and mocking comments in an attempt to offend someone within a hearing range. Now, there's a couple of cricketers who have faced a bit of jeering over the past decade. Uh, one of those guys is a guy called Stuart Broad, uh, an English fast bowler. He copped a whole bunch of jeering back in the 2011 and 12 Ashes series here in Australia after having nicked a ball in the previous series and not walking when he was out. Another person who's faced jeering is the former Australian test captain, Steve Smith. He was part of the leadership of the Australian cricket team back in 2018 when they used sandpaper to alter the state of the cricket ball in a match against South Africa. Now, these guys were both jeered at after doing things that were either deemed ethically uh, questionable or illegal in the game of cricket. However, the Jews in Nehemiah's day have not done anything wrong, and yet we see them being mocked. Verses 2 and 3 of Nehemiah chapter 4 go on to say, And he, talking about Sanballat, Sanballat said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. There's a saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. We can try to be brave in the face of words that others say about us, but that's not exactly a biblical principle, is it? In the New Testament, James writes, Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very, little, a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. 
So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. The tongue is powerful. Words are powerful. They can be used to either build up or, as we see in Nehemiah chapter 4, words can be used to incite fear and to tear down. I'm sure you can probably all think of a time when someone has said something to you and it's either made your day or it's completely ruined it. Words are powerful. So how does Nehemiah respond to the jeering and the mocking that we see in these verses? Well, in verses 4 and 5 of Nehemiah chapter 4, he prays and he hands over the opposition to God. He knows that God will hold them accountable. He knows that God will ultimately judge them, not only for their actions against his people, but also for their actions against God himself. If we fast forward a few hundred years into the future, we find another example of someone who was jeered at and mocked in this same city, even while hanging on a cross, waiting for death to take him. The people yelled out at him, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Others said, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. How does Jesus respond to those jeers and the mocking? In Luke's gospel, he prays, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. In that moment, with the weight of all of our sin on his shoulders, in that moment of justice, judgment, Jesus, who had lived 100% a perfect and holy life, literally bleeds forgiveness towards those who are yelling these mockeries at him. How incredible! A savior. There were moments where he could have pulled the plug and said, No, I'm out. I'm not going to do this. However, he persevered and he never lost sight of who he was and what his mission was. Though Nehemiah was written centuries before Jesus came, despite the opposition, the Jews stay on mission. In verse 6, we see that they continue to build the wall despite the verbal attacks they've received. They don't get distracted by that mockery, but they stay on mission. Verse 6 also provides an update on the, on the building progress. Now, the wall has been built up to half of its height. It's almost like the opposition has actually fueled the Jews 
to get more done sooner. Seeing the progress of the wall, the enemies of the Jews shift gears. They're done with words. It's time now for war. In verses 7 and 8, Nehemiah continues. And I said, oh, that's chapter 2. In chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, it continues. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. There's now this threat of enemies coming and physically attacking them. But not only is there opposition coming from outside the camp, there's also some internal opposition. Believe it or not, some of the Jews are actually pessimists and they decide to speak up here. In verse 10, they basically say, Nehemiah, the task is too big. We can't do this in our own strength. Why are you stirring up trouble with our neighbors? You're going to get us killed. Stop this foolishness. In the first half of this chapter, Nehemiah and those wanting to rebuild the walls are faced with different types of opposition, primarily from the people living around them. And yet in the midst of this, in the midst of the jeers and the mockery, in the midst of even the internal opposition and the threat of war, Nehemiah says, do not be afraid of them. Whatever opposition that we might be facing individually as Christians or corporately as God's church, let us heed this call to not be afraid. As we seek to build a community of people who know Jesus and make Jesus known, we will face opposition. The jeering and the mocking hasn't stopped. At least for the time being, the church here in Brisbane in Australia doesn't need to fear an armed attack, but that doesn't mean that we can let our guard down. There are other ways that the rulers and authorities of this world are taking the attack to God's people. There's legislation and organizational policies that are being put in place to allow for or even to enforce views for employees that might go against Christian ethics and morals. In the past six months, we've seen a number of Christian schools in Brisbane get slammed for their stances on gender equality and inclusivity. And that's not just from external groups. Over the past couple of weeks, there's been some public back and forth between a lady called Jane Carrow and John Dixon over the place of chaplaincy in public schools. Uh, you can find articles about this on the ABC website. Uh, at the General Synod, which is basically uh, a national AGM of the Anglican Church of Australia this year, a statement opposing same-sex marriage was rejected by the House of Bishops, 12 votes to 10, despite the clergy and lay leaders voting strongly in favour of it. 
There are battles being fought on many different fronts, seeking to marginalize God's people. Jobs are on the line. Lines are being blurred. Our faith in Jesus is being more and more seen as irrelevant and even outdated. Our place as God's church in society is shifting. Uh, As a pastor from Perth in WA, Pastor Stephen McAlpine puts it, we're now the bad guys. Uh, In the afterword of his book titled Being the Bad Guys, he writes this, you can refuse to allow the atomizing nature of modern individualism to get its grip on you and pull you away from God's people. And you can go forward together to engage with the world bravely and courageously and with love and concern, to continue to be all that Jesus has called us to be, even when all the world sees is a black hat coming in its direction, and humbly but resolutely to hold out a different story and a better way and a happier ending. We do not need to be afraid of those who oppose us. Rather, we can engage with them bravely and courageously with love and concern. Why? Because of who God is. Because we can remember that the Lord is great and awesome. This is the second response that Nehemiah calls God's people to have in the face of opposition. And we see this in Nehemiah 4 verse 14. First he says, do not be afraid of them. And then he goes on to say, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. The Jews need to keep perspective. They need to remember who God is. Recalling the greatness and awesomeness of their God will help them to respond without fear to the opposition they face. The Psalms are a great place to turn to, uh, to be reminded of who God is and what it is that He has done. This week, I quickly scanned through the Psalms and counted at least 35 of these Psalms that specifically declare the greatness and awesomeness of God. One example uh, is Psalm chapter 66. I'd love for you to turn there with me if you have your Bibles open. Psalm 66, 1 to 12, this, these particular verses do a couple of things. Firstly, verses 1 to 7, praise God for His great power and awesome deeds. And then secondly, verses 8 to 12, reflect on God's goodness through opposition. Let's read this psalm together. The psalmist writes, Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of His name. Give to Him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in His deeds. Toward the children of man. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the river on foot. There did we rejoice in him who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. 
let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard, who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. I love verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. The psalmist is calling his hearers to remember the Lord, to remember how he has shown his great power through his awesome deeds. Even through intense opposition, God has brought them to a place of abundance. What stirring words. Can you imagine how the Jews in Nehemiah's day must have felt about their opposition when they reflected on words like this? There's reference back to God's deliverance of his people from Egypt and their escape across the Red Sea on dry land. What awesome works by an incredibly great God. God has proven his power and his might. This God mentioned in this psalm is the same God who Nehemiah had pointed to at the end of chapter 2, who would make his people prosper in that land. They just needed to remember that he is great and awesome. He has saved them many times in the past, and he will save them again. There is great comfort, great peace that we can have in knowing that this all-powerful God who created the universe and who sent his one and only son to live, die, and rise again so that whoever believes in him might have life. We don't just see examples of his power in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we see in the Gospels that Jesus has power and authority over nature, over sickness, over the spiritual realm, and even over sin and death. When people trust in him, they do not need to be afraid of the opposition that they face in life. Instead, they can trust him knowing that he loves them and is working all things out for their good. What peace there is in knowing him. If your trust is not in Jesus this morning, I want to invite you to put your trust in him today. Life won't necessarily get any easier if you do this. But Jesus is better and far more reliable than anything that this world has to offer. If your trust is in Jesus, then you can be confident that he's never going to give you up, he's never going to let you down, he's never going to run around and desert you. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with those lyrics, they're from a song by Rick Astley, uh, and they weren't written with any theological intent. But when it comes to Jesus... 
Those words are true. Having the King of Kings in your corner at all times will give you confidence to not be afraid when you face opposition because you know that He's got you. And so I urge you this morning, put your trust in Jesus. Dane Ortland has written a, uh, a devotional based on each of the Psalms. Uh, and off the back of one of those Psalms, he writes this, When life overwhelms us, when the bottom is falling out, this is where Scripture takes us, to God. We do not achieve internal calm by securing external calm. We find internal calm by looking to God. Church, when you're faced with opposition, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. The third response that Nehemiah calls God's people to have is to fight for one another. Look again at Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 14. It says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In case they didn't realize it already, the returned exiles needed to be ready to fight. Their enemies are planning to attack them. The wall is not yet built, fully built, so they're still vulnerable. They must be ready to fight for themselves, but even more so for those they love, while also continuing the work of rebuilding the wall. Now, this is no small task. The wall around Jerusalem is four kilometers long. So how do they do it? Well, look with me at verses 16 to 18. It says, From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Yet again, we see that everyone is involved with, uh, with the building. Some are building, others are standing guard, keeping watch. But even the builders have their swords strapped to their sides. Everyone is ready for battle. Everyone is ready to spring into attack, into action at the first sign of attack. Uh, as I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, I have a question for you. Are you ready for battle? Do you realize that even here in Brisbane, we are at war? Are you fighting for those you love? How do we fight when this war is not a war fought with physical guns and swords? Well, let's see what Paul has to say on this as we round out our time together uh, in this New Testament passage. 
Paul writes to the church in Ephesus uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. While we might see and feel the physical effects of the battle we are in, these are just the outward symptoms of the spiritual battle that we are really engaged in. You might ask, but hasn't Jesus already won the war? And the short answer is yes, he has. However, until he returns and ushers in the new heaven and the new earth, we continue to live in a world where sin is rampant. We continue to live in a world where, for the most part, people do not submit to the rule and reign of King Jesus. So despite the war being won, the devil continues to fight, and so we too need to fight. This is part of the tension of living in this world. But thankfully, God has not left us to our own devices in our fight in these battles. But he has equipped us with armor for the battle. So church, let us put on the whole armor of God that we might stand firm in the evil day. Unfortunately, we don't have time to deep dive into each part of the armor that God has provided for us. But I do want us to focus on a couple of things that Paul mentions. Firstly, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is the only weapon of attack listed in this passage. If this is what we are to use to attack the enemy, how well do you know it? How much time do you spend in God's Word? A soldier's life depends on both the quality of his sword, but also his ability to wield it. When it comes to quality, there is nothing greater than what we have been provided with in God's Word. It tells us that God's Word is sharper than any two-edged sword. However, my ability, your ability to use it is another matter altogether. If it's something we're familiar with, then 
it'll be easy for us to wield it. But if it's an unfamiliar weapon that we're using, then it can be awkward to use and even outright dangerous. In some ways, it's a bit like driving a manual car. Uh, The exact point where a clutch engages in each manual is different. Uh, Recently, I said goodbye to uh, my ute that I'd been driving for 12 years. Uh, I knew exactly where that clutch engaged in that ute, but I'm still trying to get used to the new clutch uh, in the car that I've got now. After Gospel Community on Wednesday night, uh, I was leaving the car park uh, underneath where we met, And I had to get to the other side of a road. Uh, There's two lanes going in each direction. I had to get to the far side. So I've slowly nosed my way out. Uh, There's some cars parked on either side of the road. It's a little bit hard to see around the corners. Everything looked clear, and so I kept pulling out. I was probably halfway into the second lane of the oncoming traffic when I looked and saw a car coming fairly quickly towards me. Uh, And so in my rush to quickly make it to the far side, I struggled to fully engage the clutch while also accelerating too fast. Uh, And so what resulted was me kind of just jerking back and forth, uh, almost bunny hopping my way over to the other side of the road. Thankfully, few people were around to see my embarrassing driving uh, and no one was hurt, though if it had been peak hour, that could have been quite different. No one was hurt, just my pride. In war, though, your ability, to, your ability to handle your sword or your weapon is a matter of life and death. A good swordsman would say that his sword is just an extension of his arm. That's how familiar it ought to be. And we see no greater example of someone using God's word to attack against opposition and to, to even to defend against opposition than when we see Jesus being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. You can read this in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus counters everything that Satan throws against him by quoting scripture. If this is to be our sword and our primary weapon in this fight, I want to urge you this morning, familiarize yourself Get deeply acquainted with your sword. Be in God's word day and night. Memorize passages. Know the scriptures as though your life depends on it. The second thing to note from Ephesians 6 is what comes after the armor is listed. Look at verse 18. It says, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Prayer is critical. We've heard Peter share this morning as he service-led about the importance of prayer. We've seen it shape so much of Ezra and Nehemiah And Paul backs it up here in the New Testament. Uh, I am personally so grateful for the many godly men and women uh, who have prayed for me, particularly during difficult times. I envisage those who have prayed and who continue to pray today to be like those mentioned in Nehemiah who uh, are keeping watch while others 
a building. Prayer is powerful and prayer is necessary, not just for some of us, but for all of us. I love that there is a group that gathers to pray about once a month for our church and in particular for the church staff. I love that we gather each week on a Wednesday morning to pray over Zoom. Now, gathering to pray together as God's people regularly is good, but this passage actually calls us to be praying at all times, making supplication, which is another word for prayer, for all the saints. We're all in this together. We each need prayer and we each need to be praying. Just as in Nehemiah, each person needed to take turns building and standing watch, we are all at war together and we each need to play our parts to fight for our brothers, our sons, our daughters, our wives and our homes. Would you commit to praying for one another? Not just at a specific time, on a specific day, but moment by moment. Alongside the prayers of the saints, we also have Jesus interceding for us. We have Jesus there before the throne of God, basically praying for us uh, before God the Father. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for them. Who's them? Them is referring to those who draw near to God through Christ. How comforting it is to know that Jesus right now is doing that for each one of us. Let us join with him, bringing our brothers, our sisters, those we love to God in prayer. As I invite the band up, church, we need to individually, each and every single one of us, put on the whole armor of God and be praying so that we corporately together as his church might be able to stand firm against the spiritual forces of evil. As Nehemiah said to the Jews in his day, so I say to you this morning, do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of any opposition you might face, but remember the Lord who is great, who is awesome, and fight for one another. Thankfully, we can do this knowing that the battle has already been won. We can do this knowing that the battle belongs to God. He has conquered, and a day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I invite you to now stand uh, with me as I close in prayer. Father, you are a great God. You have done many wonderful, wondrous things. We thank you that your word reminds us of your awesome deeds of the great things that you have done. Help us to trust in you in the midst of the opposition that we faced, in the midst of the pain, the frustration. Help us not to be afraid, 
but to continue to live boldly as your people. Help us to fight for one another. Thank you that you have equipped us with your armour. Father, would you help us to be diligent in knowing your word that we might be able to fight back against the enemy's attacks? Would you help us to be fervent in prayer, praying at all times in the Spirit, not just for our own lives, but would we uplift our brothers and sisters to you in prayer daily, moment by moment as well? Father, we thank you that this battle does belong to you. Help us to rest in that. Would you be glorified in us? And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.